Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctor is In podcast and our special series, What Plants Crave. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba. Many of you know my guest today. He is the podcast host extraordinaire for Kiss Organics and an avid proponent of living soils. He's passionate about urban agriculture, horticulture, and educating others. Yes, today's guest is none other than Tad Hussey, owner at Keep It Simple Inc., otherwise known as KISS. Tad, it is super awesome to have you as a guest on our What Plants Crave series. You've interviewed me a couple of times, um, and I am super excited to turn the tables and ask you questions. So welcome. Thank you. I am honored to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it. So tell me about yourself. How, how did you fall in love with urban agriculture and horticulture, living soils and compost? He's like, where did all that come from? Yeah, so I grew up with my parents owning a nursery landscape business. They had seven acres on a, uh, essentially on farmland. And so they ran a, uh, just a regular old commercial nursery and had a maintenance and construction crew. Uh, initially, you know, back in the eighties, they were using chemicals and things like that. But as my dad got more passionate about organics and they started learning about potentially some of, you know, he read silent spring by Rachel Carson, for example. And so became big proponents of organics. And so they started using all organic practices and, uh, you know, frankly, I wasn't into it. I kind of hated plants growing up because it was just such a big part of our lives all the time. And then as I got older, my parents sold their nursery. I went off to college and he, my parents started, my dad got into compost teas. He was really getting into what Dr. Elaine Ingham was doing with things around microbes and learning about compost tea brewers. And so he made a uh, five gallon brewer. And so that's sort of where I got started in, in that side of things. And then I came back from college and couldn't find a job. And so I started working with him there. And then when we got the uh, seven acre property back, cause they had leased it along with, with the sale of the nursery. Uh, when we got that back, rather than start another nursery in 2011, when things were kind of people we were coming out of recession, uh, nurseries were really struggling. I was getting really into urban farming and edible landscapes and backyard chickens and all of those sorts of things. So I started looking into that and we opened a farm and feed store that was an organic hydro shop and had an outdoor preschool. We had a bunch of animals, edible nursery. It was awesome piece of property. Wow. And um, it kind of all went from there. That's really ambitious. That's a lot of stuff on a property. And, and, you, and, and you're educating kids about agriculture and, um, and where their food comes from. That's really exciting. Yeah, so it started there. And then, you know, we started getting calls from people who were growing tomatoes in their basement and uh, <laughs> that sort of thing. Legalized tomatoes. Never... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when I started getting calls about people growing tomatoes in their basement and learning about cannabis, essentially, I... Uh, I started getting more passionate about soils and I joined some forums and, and learned how other people were growing and creating their own soils. And uh, it kind of went from there. Interesting. You know, I was curious why cannabis, especially with your background 
in horticulture and urban ag in general, like what, what drew you to cannabis and, and, and do you only help people who are growing cannabis or are you helping other people? It's just that we happen to know you in the cannabis industry. You know, I, I do work with people outside of cannabis, but the nice thing about cannabis is, you know, is they have a, a higher value crop. So it allows mm. us to do a lot more, a lot more testing, a lot more research and use a lot more inputs to really dial in fertility. You know, a lot of times I work with uh, farmers that can't afford to add biochar to their field. Whereas with a cannabis grower, the cost associated with adding biochar is nominal. And frankly, I, I'm pretty passionate about some of the, you know, dispelling a lot of the myths in the industry. Like yeah. and it's gotten a lot better over the last decade. But, you know, when I first decided I wanted to grow cannabis, I went into a hydro shop. And I remember like looking over my shoulder the whole time, feeling like there's probably a sting going on or something that I was going to get in trouble for going in there. But uh, I, I, I went and looked at all the, all the labels and, you know, you, it's really hard to tell what's in the product for one. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who grew up with my parents owning a garden center, like I know what fertilizer looks like and this stuff looks so different. And I, at first I was really taken in. I was like, oh, this is a special plant, which I'm not suggesting it's not but the idea being that we need special nutrients for this special plant in order to grow it is really something that the the industry the cannabis industry has created this <clears throat> sort of myth around and so part of what I'm passionate about is getting people back to like horticulture and agricultural principles that we can apply to the cannabis industry and really you know save money and get rid of a lot of uh, unnecessary cost and expense um, and utilize people like yourself who have tradition, you know, more traditional backgrounds and knowledge that would work really well in our industry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I will agree with that, that it has been really comforting and inspiring, I guess, uh, that where we've come from over the last three, four, five years in the cannabis industry around these thoughts that this is a magical plant that needs, that has magical powers and needs magical inputs to create those powers. And I remember Allison Justice and I, when the first time we ever met was in this little um, conference in San Francisco. And, you know, I don't even remember who, but some guy went up to talk and, and he was basically saying he was promoting the myth. Of, of the cannabis plant. And we both just sat mm -hmm. there, you know, coming from our traditional horticulture backgrounds thinking, no, no, you know, like, or, or maybe, but, but just because this plant is special, uh, doesn't mean that lessons learned to how to grow other plants, other flowering, fruiting plants, or any horticultural crop, doesn't mean that mm -hmm. those lessons don't necessarily also apply to cannabis, or at least that start with that as the baseline and then, you know, and then figure out how to make tweaks to fit this particular crop. That's what we would do with a lettuce plant or a tomato, tomato plant, you know, in different cultivars and stuff. So yeah. at least starting with the foundation that's already there, that we've already developed in horticulture and CEA over many decades, let's look back at what the research and what other people are doing with those plants and see how we can apply it here. Totally. And I want to add that, like, I think it's so exciting that we work in an industry where there, there's so much more to learn. Like, 
Corn yeah. is boring. Like they've been studying for like a hundred years. They know everything about corn. Like I, that doesn't interest me, but yeah. with cannabis, like I can do a research project and I could learn something that could then spark research at Cornell, for example. And that to me is really exciting or change, you know, change the industry. And so like, I'm passionate about the science behind it. And I think that's what, what makes the industry like really, really exciting. Yeah, we, we need so much more research. And, and I kind of feel bad for our academic partners who, who are just sitting on the sidelines, like that there's nothing they can do. And they must just be jumping out of their skin wanting to research this plant. You know, I have a general question for you. I'm not a soils person. I'm, you know, I, I don't deal a lot with the root zone, though, of course, it affects um, the rest of the plant. I'm, I'm more involved in the shoot zone, right? What's happening with the part that is exposed to the air. Um, can, can you just elucidate for me, why is soil important? Oh, man. I mean, it, it, we're definitely coming at things from a different perspective. Like I always start with soil because as a gardener, as someone who started as an, as a vegetable gardener, you know, good soil makes gardening fun. Um, Hmm. If you're trying to grow a plant in poor soil, whether that's the physical properties or the biological properties or the chemical properties of that soil in terms of its fertility, it's just really, really challenging. Ultimately, it's all about figuring out what the limiting factor of growth is, but a lot of times it, it can be your, your soil. And so for me, having that base that's that's really strong, that's fertile, that's properly set up for a plant um, can make all the difference in the world and allow it to survive through, you know, drought and overwatering and environmental conditions. And, and when I'm thinking outdoors, you know, a lot of that stuff we can't control, but the one thing we really can control is our soil. So I think it's it's very important, and we we see it all the time. I mean, you look at like the Great Dust Bowl and the amount of erosion that we've had of our topsoil, and how the fertility of our soils agriculturally has gone downhill so much through mistreatment. I mean, our soil is really key to the survival of our species. Is there a way that we can remediate those those soils that have been sort of decimated over overproduction or drought and, and, and other factors, other environmental factors? You know, I think the, uh, (laughs) I think that answer is debatable. It's pretty controversial. Some people say Mm. it's too late and chemical farming is the only way we can continue. Oh no, no, don't say that. (laughs) Based on our, you know, on our high population density and what we've already done to these soils. That being said, others believe that, you know, we can regenerate a lot of those soils and, and potentially create um, yields that would still allow us to feed a large population of the of the world. But the other thing we have to look at too with climate change, um, how are we gonna be able to grow these crops here much longer? I mean, I was just talking with our good friend, Suzanne Wainwright Evans today, and she was, you know, here in Washington, we're having the coldest April in history and across on the other side of the mountains in eastern Washington, everything's running behind. You know, they're dealing with with cherries, for example. Um, they're not going to get a harvest till really late, if at all, on some stuff. So, wow. um, you know, there's there's just a lot that we're dealing with, and and while our soil is important, you know, there's just a lot of other variables there. So, 
I don't know. Hopefully, I, I'd like to think we can. I know we can definitely improve the way we grow indoors. And I think that um, that's something that I'm also pretty passionate about is just being more sustainable in CBA. As we're talking about horticulture, you know, we're able to reuse media and things like that in ways that allow us to be less wasteful and less environment, environmentally damaging. Because I mm-hmm. think we are more and more crops are going to have to move indoors as we lose the ability to grow them either because of the destruction of our soils or the environment changing to where it's not conducive to grow plants. Right. Well, that's a good segue to my next question, which is, I mean, what, what does make living soil unique? I mean, we started with just soil. And so if I think about, well, what is living soil and taking that to the next logical question in terms of indoor farming and greenhouses is you know, would you use living soil outside and inside and in a greenhouse, or is it really applicable just to one, one of those applications? Talk to us about what, what living soil is and where we could use that. Yeah. So living soil is a term that the industry kind of created. I would say the cannabis industry. Um, Hmm. It's a term that doesn't, it doesn't really apply to soil. So that's the tricky part in all this. Really? I'm hesitating. Because when we talk about soil, like true soil, it's fractions of sand, silt, and clay. Um, when we talk about living soil, what people are normally talking about is potting soil, typically peat-based or cocoa core mixed with compost and some sort of aeration component like perlite or pumice or vermiculite. Oh. So it's not even really technically soil. It's soilless media but we're calling it living soil just because that's the way the industry has sort of defined it. It's soilless media. Like my mind is blown right now. Well, yeah, if you were to use ProMix, which I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with, you know, it's peat based, that's soilless. It's huh. media. It's, you know, the reason the term living soil came about is because people are emphasizing the fact that in organic production systems, it's really the biology, it's the microbes that are the, the drivers that, that allow these nutrients to cycle into a form the plant can take up. So by emphasizing the living portion of our soil, you know, really cultivating all the bacteria and archaea and fungi in a manner that will allow them to make the nutrients that we're adding available to the plant. So. Okay. So then how do you create a living soil? So you don't just go to the store, right? You just don't just go to the hydro store and get potting soil and then call that living soil. You have to actually do something to that potting soil to make it quote unquote living. So that's controversial. Oh, <laughs> um, okay. You will, you will hear people arguing like what is living soil? And some people will say, well, you can't buy living soil in a bag. You have to make it like you're suggesting. Okay. Other people will say, Hey, you know, like, like for example, my company, we're using premium ingredients. We're putting in a compost fraction and earthworm castings that contains, you know, known good beneficial biology. So there are living organisms in our soil right off the bat. Uh, Whether or not you want to call it living soil, I I don't know. I tried to coin this term biological horticulture to try and get catch on for like this type of growing, but no one liked it. So (laughs) it never went anywhere. (laughs) Well, you guys all heard it here first. If you haven't heard it before, (laughs) biological horticulture. So um, I, I don't know if it's necessarily um, something you can buy in a bag. I mean, we try and sell soils that are essentially what it is. It's like a, a higher quality soil mix than you would normally find 
in your traditional hydro shop or garden center or greenhouse environment. Okay, so so let's say that you buy it from your uh, you know a, a a bag of soil from your garden center. What do you and and you're going to say okay, well that that can be living soil. You don't have to add any anything specific to convert it into or or maybe to inoculate it, right? With with microbes, with microorganisms. So then what are you doing instead then to facilitate those microorganisms to sort of flourish and to create a symbiotic relationship with your plants? Because that's ultimately what you're trying to do, right? Like you want them to be working together and helping each other, I'm assuming. Absolutely. So the idea is that like, in terms of whether or not you can buy living soil in a bag, it's, it's that you may get a bag and then over time, you know, through these functional sets of organisms will establish and thrive and that soil will become alive. Whether or not it's like that out of the bag, you know, we could debate, but, but the idea is really this creating, like you said, this relationship between the microbes and the plant and the plant roots in a manner that allows the plant to really thrive. And so what, when those microorganisms do thrive, what are the benefits we would see uh, to the plant? I mean, anyone that's grown a healthy plant organically, that's really the end goal. You know, I think we can apply science. So this idea that just because we're organic means we throw science out the window, I think is another one of those Mm. myths. You know, I've heard people say, oh, I'm organic. I don't need to pH my water. I don't need to worry about those sorts of things. I don't have to worry about NPK. And that's just frankly not the case. I mean, plant physiology doesn't change just because we're organic and not using chemicals. So at least, you know, with our company, we try to apply more of a science-based approach. So we're looking at chemical analysis of the soil. We're evaluating the physical properties of the media. And then we look at the biological properties. And and granted, we can do a little bit of that with microscopy or other methods. But realistically, um, if we create the right conditions, the microbes will show up. And we can add microbes, like we can talk about the variety of biostimulants on the market or even compost teas and things like that as a way of adding microbes to soils. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's really just creating this, you know, optimal conditions for a plant so that the soil and the fertility of that soil is not the limiting factor of growth. So, I, I mean, a few questions come to my mind after that. One is, I'm, I'm thinking about the longevity, I guess, is, is the sort of umbrella thought. The longevity of a living sort of working soil. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, my garden. And yeah, I went and got potting mix. And, and I'm still basically using the same soil, the same potting soil that I bought year over year. And maybe I mm-hmm. amend it and add more to it. And so I, I imagine like, I'm increasing its life or maybe it's matured over time. And then the next sort of thought that I have around that is if you're in an indoor farm, right? How do you deal with the soil at the end of a harvest? I know those are kind of two different questions, but again, it's like, do you want to hold on to that living soil? Are you scrapping that and starting over every time? Well, let's start with your first question. Let's, let's take your garden. I think that's a really great example. So 
let's take a four by eight garden bed. You filled it with a yard of soil. So you got about 10 inches of potting soil in there. Um, technically soil is media. It's got nutrients already in it, fertilizer that came with it. You plant your garden in there, right? You're harvesting plants. So you're pulling out nutrients. You're pulling out organic matter in the form of biomass, you know, the leafy greens and the fruit that you're eating out of that bed. Okay. So at the end of that cycle, that soil is going to be somewhat depleted. And being that it's outdoors, that you're watering the crop, that you're having, you know, rain events, certain nutrients that are more mobile are going to leach out of that soil, specifically sodium, potassium, and uh, nitrogen, nitrates are, are probably leaching out. So come next year after sitting through the winter, you're going to need to add more nutrients back in. And maybe that bed is dropped down because also during this time, the microbes are breaking down the organic matter towards humus. And so the level in your bed has probably come down a bit too. So maybe now you only have eight inches of soil. So you may bring in some more potting soil or some more compost, or you may have put in some mulch, something to create more organic matter and raise the bed back up. And then you may have to add more fertilizer in the spring to add more nutrients. And so what a fertilizer company does when they put a picture of a tomato on there is they're taking all of this sort of, in theory, I'm not saying fertilized companies are that sophisticated, but they're looking at what like NPK a tomato might need. And then they're assuming that the soil is sitting outside all year and that it's going to be out of nitrogen, out of potassium. They're going to put in phosphorus because probably more than they need. Uh, but essentially that's what, that's what goes into, goes back into your soil and creates the system. Cause you're not digging that soil, that potting soil out of your bed every year and putting in new stuff. So it's the exact same concept indoors, only we're doing it on a much, uh, higher constant, highly concentrated scale. So if we take that bed and put it indoors, we're not going to have necessarily the same leaching and, and weather events with rain. So we're not going to have as much nutrients coming out. But we also don't have that fallow period or time when you may run a cover crop because we have to be able to, you know, re-amend and replant within, you know, 24 to 36 hours. So for something like that, we'll um, harvest the crop. We will have already done a soil test about a, a week or two beforehand. So we can um, figure out what, what's being pulled out of that soil. And then we'll re-amend that soil mix at a level that allows allows us to raise fertility without essentially thermally composting that soil. If you add too much um, nutrients, the bacteria will create a thermophilic reaction by reproducing so rapidly that it'll heat up the soil and then the plants will suffer because the roots don't like those temperatures and it can actually rob nitrogen from the plant. So uh, there's a little bit of balance there, but essentially we'll re-amend right in place and till it into that bed and then replant, you know, 24 to 36 hours with our next, next uh, crop. So our flowering room, that soil doesn't necessarily need to leave. And we have people that have done this for, you know, three years, five years, you know, five cycles a year. So multiple cycles over years and the amount of labor associated. So one of the things is that's not sustainable about current production is the typical way is we, you know, we bring in rock wool, which is horrible, or even just some peat-based media or cocoa and chemical salts, mineral salts over the top. And then that media gets dumped out. And then we bring in all new media and do the whole thing over and over again. So it creates a lot of waste. 
And so this allows us to have a lot less waste and a lot less labor associated with moving all this media in and out of the facility. So there's a lot of benefits there from a sustainability perspective. And I think that we can match yields with you know, hydro in, in you know, 90, 95% of cases. Um, so just because you're organic doesn't mean you're sacrificing yield. And you know, this is just speculation. I think it's a bit arrogant of us as humans to think that we know everything a plant wants and needs better than natural systems with all the microbes working together and consuming, you know, brood exudates. Um, I think the plant can control that process better. And I think we get better, you know, terpenes and cannabinoids in a plant that has access to that nutrient cycling through the microbial loop rather than us trying to spoon feed it ionic chemicals all the time. I love that you said that because something that I, I think about a lot is do we necessarily want a happy plant? Like, you know, when I, I think about climate control and lighting control and, and you walk into these indoor farms and it's always the same set points, right? It's always the same lighting. Uh, there's very little bit, very little variation. Maybe there's variation because you want to steer the plant to do certain things, um, but not mm-hmm. necessarily because, you know, it was a particularly sunny or hot day if you were in a greenhouse or outside, right? And the plant had to respond to that. And and sometimes I think, well, maybe you know, that, that adage of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Maybe that's true for plants too, right? That if they, if you give them some variability, if you expose them to differences and, and they don't have to be extreme, like every hour you're, you know, you're changing, you're swinging things around, but you know, maybe you just kind of one day you just randomly have a little bit less light and randomly you just change the temperature to be a little hotter, you know, just, I mean, I totally out of the box thought, but that, that cannot necessarily be bad for a plant. I mean, a plant, these plants have evolved over millions of years in all sorts of random conditions. And yes, we want to try to create the most optimal environment for them to grow in the way we want them to grow and when we want them to grow. But I'm with you. I think that they are living beings that are adaptive to their environment and maybe, maybe they'll grow better if we let them figure some things out for themselves or how to work with their environment and not just give them the same thing, the same treatment over and over, whether that's the chemical treatment or the temperature treatment at the top. Wow. Well, you know, plant stress is so fascinating. And I think it's a, it's a topic that we we're going to see a lot more research over decades before we really have any answers, um, especially in the cannabis industry, because, you know, cannabinoids, as you know, are a defense mechanism. Trichomes, for example, uh, function in that resort. So when you stress a plant, it's going to put more energy into that as it's naturally senescing. Um, so that's that's definitely a thing that, you know, you see that with plant stress. You'll see you get higher cannabinoid levels a lot of times, um, but you'll get lower yield. So there's, there's a balance. A trade-off. There. Yeah. Yep. And I think there's a lot we need to learn. I, the big challenge with that, and you know, people will do dry downs and things like that at the end of the cycle. And I think we're starting to see more research around those sorts of I things. I want to ask you about that with with living soils, actually. But keep on okay. your train of thought if you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, all I'll say is the the biggest challenge there 
is with a commercial facility, if we're talking specifically about cannabis, is we have such, you see such massive genetic diversity. So I can have two plants in the exact same soil side by side that are different cultivars that are very, very different plants with very different nutrient needs, very different you know, environmental controls that they're gonna want in terms of um, humidity and temperature and all of those sorts of things to where it would be very, it'd be very difficult to make any blanket statements without taking into account a specific cultivar, if that makes sense. And because Absolutely. of the genetic diversity, I think it's gonna be a long time until we really have any solid answers there, or maybe we won't ever, and it'll have to be specific to a cultivar and say, this cultivar likes it, or, you know, you still get good yields, but you're getting, you know, higher cannabinoid production and terpene expression when we do this, you know, when we flood the bed or flood the plant at week six or, you know, whatever you come up with, but it might have to be specific to cultivar. And those are always changing because customers want the, that hype strain, you know, in a lot of cases or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. So, yeah, I, you know, I wanted to ask you, I, I mean, when, when we are steering a plant or when we're trying to get it to respond in a certain way, you know, there, there are different levers, right. That we can pull different knobs. We can turn, um, you know, we can change the temperature of the VPD. We can change the lighting intensity. You can change, you know, the, the water frequency or, or temperature, maybe even if you're doing truly hydroponics, um, with, you know, if, if we just zoomed in on the root zone management to steer a plant, does living soils, is that a harder ship to steer if you wanted? I actually didn't mean to <laughs> have a pun in there, but is that a harder ship to steer and make those changes or, or no? So one thing I forgot to mention is in real life practice, like in real world situations, I think plants have in every facility I've visited, they're getting stressed. Is it a targeted intentional stress? Probably not. So my viewpoint at this point in time is to, from a soil perspective is let's try and make sure that the soil is not the limiting factor of growth, that all the fertility the plant needs is there, that they can access it at, you know, at whatever stage of growth it's at. So I would rather steer things through environmentals or through light spectrum or through watering than I would through fertility, if that makes sense. So I, I, I would okay. like to make sure that we're at least at sufficiency for all your major micro or macronutrients. Um, because I haven't seen good results when we, when we say like, let's say a plant is lacking in phosphorus or calcium or, you know, whatever macro you want to pick, that plant's going to suffer and your yields are going to go down pretty dramatically. I think you'd be better off using one of those other levers, I guess, but you can absolutely flood a bed. You can dry back a bed. You know, the microbes are resilient. That's not really an issue, but I don't really like to play around with limiting nutrients. I will say, you know, there's certain nutrients that I think are more important that we want to boost maybe in flour, like say potassium, for example, or calcium. Okay. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying, Hey, let's limit don't deplete or, it of nitrogen at the very end type of a thing well yes so there is there are nitrogen targets at the end of a cycle that i try to hit because we don't want too much end because that will cause other issues with chlorophyll production but i certainly don't want i you know we need some nitrogen through flower in order for the plant to grow 
healthy enough before it starts naturally senescing at you know 55 days or whatever that particular cultivar is evolutionarily selected for. So are the plants grown in the same media from, and if we're talking about cannabis, are they grown in the same soil media from say through the veg stage and the flowering stage, or is there transplanting that you're doing from one stage to another? Well, we're absolutely transplanting. Um, Okay. For a number of reasons. I think, uh, I think it's helpful uh, to transplant because one, I mean, the biggest reason being it's safe space. Yeah. You know, we're paying for lighting. There's no reason to light a whole bed with nine tiny little <laughs> starts in it. <laughs> um, it's just a waste of energy. And then also um, it's really, really hard to water tiny plant in a big pot. That pot could hold onto water, but the area right around, you know, the roots, the rhizosphere could be really poorly watered. Just the capillary action of water and soils makes it really challenging to water on a commercial scale in that sort of scenario. And then there's something to be said for taking a plant, transplanting it, breaking up the roots a little bit, Mm. um, stimulating that root hair growth, and then replanting into another pot. So big proponent of transplanting uh, for those reasons. So to answer the question there, um, early on in a plant cycle, it doesn't need like, for example, a seed has all the nutrients it needs. It's not going to want a highly fertile mix. So in there, starting with something like your traditional seed starter or something that, that has a little bit of fertility, has more aeration for gas exchange, but less nutrients is really going to be more ideal for that seed. And then as the plant starts growing, you know, it's going to need a little more nitrogen and phosphorus in veg than it would necessarily in uh, flower. But uh, the plant really will is able to control that. So we have some growers that will use the same soil, you know, are from us in veg and flower, and that seems to work great. And we have others that will use something that's maybe a little bit lower fertility or has, um, you know, a little bit higher of, of those nutrients for veg, and then switch into a higher fertility soil and flower, depending on what they're what they're looking to do. Um, would you would you ever yeah. see a scenario where they would transfer from one type of media and finish in in living soil, maybe? Or do you really are you really a proponent for like you start with this and and the entire life cycle is the the plant is exposed to this living soil? Yeah, you know, I don't see that a lot, but we do see, and again, I want to see more research on this, but we do see increased plant stress when people try and take like a rock roll cube and then put it into, uh, you know, quote unquote living soil. Um, there is sort of this like acclimation period. I mean, it, and it makes sense logically to me, but again, I want to see the research to support it. But the idea that you're feeding this plant ionic mineral salts, and then all of a sudden you're saying, hey, I'm not giving you this, you know, this force feed of nutrients anymore. Now you have to work with your environment to get your own through these microbes. Um, it seems like the plant will kind of like, just kind of stop growing for a week and then Mm. it'll take off as it adjusts and it's okay. But, you know, you don't want to lose a week in a commercial facility. So we we do see that there can be a little bit of switch. When you start talking about switching media, you can see some level of plant stress or or plant delay and growth as the plant adjusts. You know, this is anecdotal, but yeah, no, I mean, it makes sense. I think we're seeing 
you you went from bottle feeding the plant to go out and hunt for your own food. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Essentially, that's what I think we're seeing. That's, but why? I, I have a really fundamental question. Why do plants need different amounts of different chemicals or molecules at different stages of their growth? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I think it's just an evolutionary thing as they, because in flower we're producing buds or fruit and that requires different macronutrients and micronutrients than in earlier state vegetative stages when they're producing leafy, leafy greens and there's more focus on root production. So, I, I, so just based on what you said, like phosphorus seems to support more of the vegetative growth of a plant. Phosphorus is typically associated with uh, healthy root growth. Okay. Oh, so, okay. Um, okay. So you're establishing the roots. That's part of what we're doing in veg is establishing those roots, which is why a higher phosphorus level at that stage would be beneficial. Yeah. We don't see the same root production when uh, we're feeding the plant, you know, heavy doses of salts as mm -hmm. we would in organic production. So because the, the plant doesn't need to put energy into growing big roots. That's how you can grow a giant plant in a tiny rockwell cube because the plant doesn't really need those roots. It just needs those root tips mm. in order to take in those, those salts. Whereas and support in itself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, in organic production, you know, we need that larger volume of media for that plant to really thrive. It needs to create a much more robust root system. So that is a, that is a factor when we, when we look at the difference between the two systems and um, Interesting. And then when you go into fruiting and flowering or flowering and fruiting, I guess that would be the, the logical progression. Um, then you don't need as much, you don't need to drive so much energy into the roots because they're already established. And so maybe you can bring your phosphorus down or keep it where it was. Um, but then you might increase the potassium that that might help with flower and fruit production. So two thoughts on that one. Uh, one thing that there's some research has shown that high phosphorus will um, potentially inhibit mycorrhizal infection. And mycorrhiza, as you, as you know, is this fungi that has a symbiotic relationship with the plant, it has a bunch of benefits beyond just uh, cycling phosphorus to the plant. But it's interesting how when we put a lot of phosphorus in the soil, phosphorus being relatively unavailable to the plant, unless it's in a phosphate form. The reason I think we keep, we applied it so high in the cannabis industry was just to keep it available to the plant. So everyone thought, you know, phosphorus flower, because it just was relatively unavailable. But what we're seeing is if we have high levels of phosphorus in that soil already, if we can get the right microbes and get a good, healthy consortium in there, that phosphorus becomes available. We don't need to apply a lot of phosphorus in flower. In fact, a lot of guys, a lot of growers, if they have enough volume of soil, they can really get through their entire cycle with just water. Wow. Could we, push, we could definitely push the plants harder by adding some more nutrients or even using a light dose of ionic um, minerals over the top. Um, this idea that, you know, all chemical fertilizers are bad. I mean, you could make that argument ethically, but if we want to talk about scientifically, you know, you can definitely get more yield using a hybrid approach. I mean, the giant pumpkin growers have shown it. 
really, if you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> nice. it, it happens, but. Um, <laughs> How did they grow those giant pumpkins? <laughs> actually, the, the world record, at least of a few years ago, was grown in Germany in a greenhouse. I was talking with Suzanne yes. about this because we were talking about how CEA is becoming, it may become the future of our food production. Mm. Um, and being able to control those conditions on a squash to where you're not getting, I mean, I always got powdery mildew here in the Northwest. It was just the reality of trying to grow giant pumpkins. Um, but we were still able to get, I, I think my record was like 700 pounds, what? which in the giant pumpkin world, you're like, <laughs> that's like the beyond the lowest level. Of How do you even move that? Do you just like cut it open right there and just like bring the oven to it to like make a pumpkin pie? Like how, how? <laughs> So it's not, it's not really edible. Um, okay. I mean, our pigs ate it and our chickens, but uh, it's really just more for fun. We did it for the kids to be able to see it, but we picked it up with a, uh, on a, a forklift. You throw it on a pallet. Yeah. So oh, you, throw, you put a pallet under go. it early yes. and then you forklift it, but they make special straps. Oh yeah. It's a That's whole thing. Amazing. Um, but I wanted to get back to your question about, yeah, yeah. about phosphorus, because one of the things that I was thinking about here is you see these like PK boosters here in the cannabis industry. And I think it's really the K that's driving that because the other thing about it is K is a lot more mobile in your soil. So you'd probably leached it out. So if we add it, ah. you know, we add it later in flower, that's really going to help your buds create that like density and weight that you, that you want and need. Interesting. So I just wanted to get that thought out. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. You know, and you also brought up something that I was I was also thinking about is once you have the living soil in place and then you've transplanted, let's just say you've transplanted your veg plant into your flowering room and, and its soil. I have two questions. One is how frequently do you need to water living soil? You know, if I think about rock wool, we could be dripping every 30 minutes or every hour, a little dose of water. What would it be for living soil? I'm assuming it would have a higher water retention rate. Absolutely. It does. Yes. Um, so we have some people using uh, blue bats, which is sort of a, it's a little tensiometer, cheap tensiometer sensor that goes in every container every bed that measures the moisture tension the water tension in the soil and then doles out water as the plant needs it other people that are hand watering are probably watering every two to three days with the idea being that we don't want to water so heavily that we're leaching out a lot of nutrients but also still creating that gas exchange so pushing okay. oxygen down into the root zone is, is still important but yeah there is higher water holding capacity so you're not watering the same way you would with hydroponics. Um, but we do see better growth and yield when we have more consistent watering. So when the plant, when we can maintain our um, water tension within a given range, like 80 to 120 MBAR with our soils or 80 to 100 ideally, that allows us to get better growth and yield than we, when we have more fluctuation in the hydrology in that soil. And we've done trials that are actually on our website blog if people want to read about it to see that. And so to achieve that, you would have um, more frequent lower volume irrigation events? Yes. I mean, that's essentially what the blue mats do for us. Okay. Um, 
plus like, you know, if the plant wants water at three o'clock in the, in the morning on a Saturday, you're not going to have anyone there to water it. So having, having a sensor that allows it to dole out the water as the plant needs it. Cause the other thing too, is, you know, we're going to have a plant with a small root zone early on in its life. is going to have very different watering needs than a plant mm -hmm. that is filling out that container versus a plant that is, you know, towards the end of flower and starting to senesce and, you know, doesn't need as much water either, or you may want to shut off water at that point. So having a, just a timer that is set to go off every interval doesn't really account for those root zone changes either. Do you, do you have to treat the water in any way? I mean, are you also looking at a water quality test to see what you could be adding to that soil? Do you recommend any sort of treatment before applying that water to the soil? Absolutely. Water can vary so much. Um, I am not a water expert, but I know just enough to be dangerous and, and look at a water test and say, hey, we need to, we need to, this is factoring into our fertility of our soil. Because if a water is really high in sodium or bicarbonates or calcium, that can, and the pH is really high, that can stress the plant or also cause things to build up if we're reusing our media. So that's, that's definitely a factor. And then one other thing we haven't touched on is heavy metals, which is, is now something that we have to look at in the cannabis industry. But something we should all really be aware of is with our inputs into, this, into our soils or the fertilizers that we're using, we need to take into consideration, you know, is our water bringing in arsenic, for example, or um, things like that. So we, oh my God. we highly believe in testing. Oh, the world's a scary place. <laughs> Trust. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and you said, I just want you to follow that line of thought for a second. You said, especially with cannabis, we need to consider um, these heavy metals. Why? Okay. So cannabis in general, hemp is a heavy metal. It's a nutrient accumulator. It pulls up heavy metals quite easily. We're able to manipulate that a little bit by maintaining our pH a little bit higher, making it harder for it to uptake certain metals but it's naturally going to want to pull up metals into its biomass. Uh, also, regulations in many states are testing cannabis for heavy metals. So people are passing or failing based on what's in that leaf tissue. Oh, so that's a factor. And then um, just overall, you know, we want to manage our soil and our health, or, you know, thinking about these concepts. And, you know, water is one of the biggest culprits. So that's where water tests come in as being really, really important. And RO water, also known as hungry water, is not necessarily ideal either because it's going to strip metals. It's going to want to bond with something. Um, and so you have to be very careful with that. We typically want to remineralize that water either with your existing well water or irrigation water at some level just to, just to buffer it prior to putting it into your soil or watering your plant. So water is a complicated topic, but it's definitely something that we want to look at when we're talking about any form of, of growing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, water is the key element in all things, agriculture, all things, farming, doesn't matter what you're growing. Um, and so we talked about water quality and, and obviously, you know, these living fertile soils is, is about the quality of that root zone. But I have to ask about if about quantity of water with these living soils uh do you think there's uh, an opportunity to save 
water or reduce the water that is needed to grow these plants comparatively to any other media we might be using? Or do you think it's about the same? That's a great question. I don't know if I have an answer to that because these facilities really aren't tracking that. And I think it'd be really yeah. hard because you'd have to look at transpiration rates too. You know, I mean, there's a lot of variables there. But what I can say is we do work with some facilities, like one in particular I'm thinking of is my good friend, Justin McGill. And by the way, he shows everything he does on Instagram. If people want to actually oh, awesome. see what this process looks like, it's um, you can watch it on on his Instagram. But he uh, he he converted an old chicken factory, like chicken egg production building, into his cannabis facility, and they didn't have drains in the floor. So he has these giant soil beds, you know, like twenty yards of soil in a room with no drain. So he has a little tiny cup that hangs off of the end in a, like a bucket that hangs off the end of a spout. And that's really all the runoff he can get in that bed. So the amount of water that's leaving through leaching through um, his watering is really minimal. And over time, because of the quality of his water, we're seeing a little bit of an issue with sodium building up. But this is, you know, a year or two in. So he's five to 10 cycles minimum in before this is even becoming an issue because we're managing his fertility. But I have to think that that sort of methodology from a water conservation perspective has to be better than some of the hydroponic or other production methods, unless they're recycling and reusing their water, which creates a lot of other issues that, frankly, I'm not an expert on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if, if you're not leaching out any water and you don't have any drain to waste from, from the irrigation system, then mm -hmm. you brought up one of my favorite topics, which is transpiration. Then all the water that the plant takes up is then going to be transpired. And if you're using air conditioning, cause you're an in indoor farm or dehumidifiers, you can basically produce distilled water and recycle that right back into your watering system. Um, with just a little bit of water treatment, not a lot of bit of water treatment. Nadia, are you seeing though any issues with heavy metals as that water contacts the different parts of that air conditioner or dehumidifier? The metals? I get, yep. No, not necessarily. It's really dependent on the manufacturer. It's where we may see it is, um, is the solder on evaporator coils. Sometimes um, they'll use like, you know, zinc and, and other sort of metals that are dissimilar to the copper or the stainless steel evaporator coils. And so then because that water is basically distilled water, it can leach out some of that metal. Mm -hmm. um, but usually it's, it's, what we've seen so far is that it's at a level that's lower than what you would even see from your tap water from the municipality. Um, mm -hmm. We also, you know, be, again, because it's, it's distilled water, 
um, does have the tendency to potentially leach um, metals uh, and create like a galvanic current. If you are using galvanized steel for your piping for the condensate collection. Um, so you would be better off actually just using, you know, schedule 80 um, PVC pipe or HDPE or something like that to collect your condensate. And then you won't leach out any metals from the piping either. Are we leaching any chemicals from plastics? Like I know BPA was a big thing in the news you know, 20 years ago. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't know. I mean, just like, like you, you've mentioned a few times here there, you know, I would love to see research on that. I would love to see some growers actually take some water sample measurements. You know, if they send water samples to a lab uh, of what they're pulling from their well, it'd be awesome if they could then also send them a sample from their dehumidifiers and send it and see what that looks like. I don't know if PVC, if I would be worried about that too much. Um, HDPE for sure. I wouldn't be worried about phthalates or, or BPAs. I don't know, PVC is used so much in piping. I would hope that we're not seeing leaching, but you know, like you said, the world's a scary place. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. People seem to get away with anything. But yeah, that super clean distilled water does have a tendency to want to pick up ions where it can. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, while we're talking about taking measurements, what is important to measure and monitor in your route? Uh, zone environment? What exactly, I don't know, what, what should growers be measuring to know the health of their root system? I mean, more traditionally, you could pull a plant and measure root biomass, but, you know, realistically, when we talk about soil, I had mentioned there were sort of three things that we look at when we, when we look at a soil. We're looking at the physical properties of that soil. So how well does it support root growth, allow for gas exchange, you know, between oxygen and, and carbon dioxide. And then um, what are the biological properties of that soil? Does it contain, you know, good, how good, healthy ecosystem to allow for nutrient cycling? And then the chemical analysis, which is the, what minerals are in that soil? Um, what minerals are available right now? through say a saturated paste test and then what minerals are maybe in the soil, but not necessarily available to plant at the moment through a, you know, a stronger acid extraction, something like a malic three is the one that I'm most familiar with. So in terms of how we measure those things, the physical properties of the soil, um, we I typically measure through observation. You know, you can water that soil and kind of measure how well does it retain water? How well is it how much oxygen is getting pushed down there. And some of that you get a feel for as a grower. Like you can tell looking at the soil, like if I water this soil, is it just turned into the stinky, mucky mess? Well, we need to fix the physical properties of it before we look at anything else. And it's not conducive for aerobic bacteria because that's what anaerobes are creating this nasty odor. Yeah, I imagine, but, I just envision like a seasoned farmer just digging their hand into that soil and just kind of, you know, feeling it and letting it kind of spread through their fingers to know like, what is the moisture content? What is the structure of the soil? When I was growing mushrooms and we were always targeting a 65% moisture content of the substrate, 
you know, I did it so often that it, it did get to that point where I didn't have to take a sample, stick it in a, in a oven, right. And then do like a moisture a content calculation. I could just feel it and know, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I'm about 60, 65% moisture content. So, so that's what I envision you doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you say that you were, you were thinking of mushrooms. Um, I was thinking of potting soil because that's what uh -huh. I was Yeah. So yeah. Really soil as needy is what I was picturing in my head. I was like thinking about how much pumice or perlite would be in that mix. It's about a third of the mix. And in your raised bed, for example, if you're adding compost and that organic matter is breaking down over time, you're probably going to want to add some more aeration. And most people just add more potting soil instead of just adding compost as a way of kind of combating that because the compost, if you know, straight compost may not have enough structure to really allow for good porosity and aeration in there. So yeah, that, that sort of covers the physical properties, but then in terms of what you're testing to get back to your original question, I really only look at a chemical analysis because if we can get the mineral, assuming we were adding high quality compost or earthworm castings or something that allows for good microbes, then um, at that point, really, I just want to make sure that my minerals are in there and that they're all at sufficiency and not way out of whack to where my cation balance is, is relatively within a range that would be optimal for plants and that my pH is, you know, where I want it to be. And is the chemical anal analysis also sort of an indirect measure of the biological health of that soil? Not really. They're, they're, hmm. they're pretty much unrelated. So hmm. the, there, there are some folks in the Albrecht camp, for example, that would say that when, when the minerals are balanced within a certain cation ratio, the microbes will show up naturally outdoors and, you know, in, in real soils and you'll, uh, you'll be just fine. There's others that believe when the, the microbes are right, then the mineral balance doesn't matter. My experience is that when we get the minerals sort of where we want them approximately within a range, because it is a range, you know, it's not like these soil tests are the Holy Bible. They're just, they just give us a good idea of what may be a limiting factor of growth or if something is really out of whack. So when we get those right, I feel like, or, or within a range that we like, everything seems to thrive, assuming, you know, environmentals and water and all those other things are where we want them. And I don't really worry about the microbes, but we are starting with soils that have very good, you know, compost and earthworm castings that have very good microbial activity. And that's something that we tested early on before putting them into our soil mix. So this question keeps kind of revolving through my brain during our conversation, which is about how you amend these living soils or, or what you use. And in, you've brought up a few, few thoughts. You, you've said compost, compost tea, biochar, earthworm castings. With these materials that, I mean, some of them are, are sort of alive. Some of them are, you know, inert, I guess. Mm -hmm. is, is there a concern about the consistency of those amendments um, that, I mean, would you also want to test those before applying them to your soil? Ideally, I mean, for your raised vegetable garden, like you're probably not going to spend 
sure. hundreds of dollars on testing. If right. you're in a, a facility though, um, yes, it would be great to have that testing because those amendments can have heavy metals. And, you know, at the end of the day, when we go to reamend a soil, let's just say that that's, so I see that it's the end of a cycle. We're low in nitrogen. Nitrates are low. So how do I raise that up for the next cycle? Well, there's a ton of different amendments we could use. A compost, a compost that has good nitrogen levels is one example. Um, feather meal, bat guano, blood meal, fish meal. There's, there's a ton of options, a variety of manures. All these things are going to bring in nitrogen and they all have pros and cons. Like I don't like to use any bat guanos because not because they aren't good sources of NPK, but because they're just not ecologically very sustainable for our environment. One could make the argument that they don't want to support our industrial slaughterhouses and, and current meat production systems, so they don't want to use blood meal. Or you may say, hey, I'm, you know, I don't like the way our fisheries are run, and I don't want to get anything out of the ocean because of risk of, I don't know, radiation or mercury or things like that. And then you may want not want to use fish meal. So there's a lot of thought that has to go into wow, that's a lot. how you're amending. <laughs> But at the end of the day, the plant doesn't care. It doesn't care if it's blood meal. It doesn't care if it's ammonium nitrate. It doesn't care if it's earthworm castings. I mean, nitrate is nitrate to the plant. And that's something as an organic person that was really hard for me to want to accept. Because I want to think that like my organic input is better than a a chemical input. But really, the plant doesn't care. Now, there's, I think there's a ton of other benefits when we use earthworm castings over ammonium nitrate because we're able to get you know, all these beneficial microbes, we're getting trace minerals, we're getting um, all these other benefits to it, organic matter that you wouldn't get from a chemical, a chemical fertilizer. It's better for the environment. Um, it's a you know, closed loop cycle of breakdown of you know, vegetable matter or some other ecosystem of, of our food production. So. I think we can look at why and make arguments for why we're doing something, but at the same time, we have to be, you know, I, I still think we have to use science and realize like at the end of the day, when we, when we're doing these things, it doesn't matter to the plant. Right. Thank you for joining us for the first half of our conversation with Tad Hussey. Join us next week to learn more from the co-founder of Kiss Organics and the host of the Cannabis Cultivation and Science podcast. I'm Dennis Wadan, and this has been The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for growing with us.